0: It says, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or sheep which has any blemish or defect, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. Lord, we thank you for your word this evening. Uh, we thank you for the many blessings that you've given us, or many privileges that you've blessed us with, Lord, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd fill us now as we study your word, as we take a break from the crazy week, Lord, and just uh, the madness that the world is in right now, Lord. We ask that you'd please refill us and refresh us. Lord, we ask that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to tell us tonight. And Lord, we pray for our friends, our family, Lord, those going through uh, difficulty, Lord. We continue to pray for all the hurting, all the broken, Lord. Uh, Pray for Tatiana, Lord, Nancy, all that they're going through in this season as well, Lord. And just many within the flock who are hurting and broken. Pray that you just be with them and strengthen them, Lord. And uh, Lord, just be with us. Help us to be mindful of you and to just see what you have to speak to us tonight. We love you and we thank you, Jesus. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Deuteronomy 17, a lot of good things within this chapter. We're going to see what God desires in terms of sacrifice. Sometimes we can say, hey God, this is my sacrifice to you. This is my gift to you. But it's good to see what's God's definition. Of a gift or of a sacrifice. We'll also see God's view of cleaning house, God's view of purging sin out of our lives or out of our communities, our sphere of influence. And then finally, we'll see how God desires for royalty to live. Uh, I don't know some people are really into that, the way princes live or queens. Some people are big into how the English queens and kings live. I don't, I, don't know, I don't understand why, but some people are really big into that. But we'll see how God wants royalty to live. But we read verse 1 already. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or sheep which has any blemish or defect, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. Back in Deuteronomy 15, it says, But if there's a defect in it, if it's lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. And here we see God takes a pretty great offense at people calling their leftovers or broken things a sacrifice to Him. In fact, He calls it an abomination. Uh, there's that uh, token analogy. Someone has a cow, and the cow's about to have twins, and they say, Lord, I'm going to sacrifice one of these calves for you. One of the twins dies, and they say, Lord, I found your sacrifice. The cow that died. And the Lord's just not into that. And it's not about the amount that we're able to give, it's the heart behind our sacrifice unto the Lord. We know that in Mark chapter 12, verse 42, there's the widow that gave only two mites. She could only afford to give half a penny, and yet Jesus says to his disciples that this poor widow has put more in than all who have given to the treasury. For they all put out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Family, are our sacrifices to the Lord out of our abundance and leftovers? Or is it a true sacrifice? Is it out of our livelihood? Is there a cost involved with our sacrifices and gifts to the Lord? We know that 2 Corinthians 9-7 tells us that we should give as we purpose in our heart. Not grudgingly or out of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver and if we respect or honor a family member a spouse a loved one a father or mother more than the lord there's something wrong there there's something off there god he's given us his best i love the lord i love jesus they always lead by example and god gave us his best and now he demands his best in return Ladies, how many of you enjoy receiving flowers from your boyfriend, fiancé, or husband? Any of you ladies enjoy receiving flowers? A few ladies? Imagine your husband, your fiancé, your boyfriend brings you flowers. They're the most beautiful flowers you've ever seen. You're so excited. He hasn't done it in a while. And you may have so much joy, but what happens when he tells you that he picked up those flowers at the cemetery on the way home? Are you as excited about those flowers? Or all of a sudden is there a sort of like, get that away from me. I don't want to touch that. Did you take that off of somebody's tombstone? Well, how did you get this? Imagine uh, men here. If you're dating a girl, you're courting a girl, and she invites you over for dinner. She's going to make you a meal for, for you and her family so you could get to know her. And then when you get there, she goes in the refrigerator, pulls out a Tupperware, and starts microwaving something. And the family says, yeah, don't worry, we ate it last week, it's still good, and we're just all going to take part in these leftovers. We, we really wouldn't enjoy that no matter how hungry of a bachelor you are. There's a certain level of, man, if you love me, you would put a little bit of work into this. You, you would at least put a tiny bit of effort into it. We can turn to Malachi chapter 1 or sometimes i like to call it malachi right the italian the italian prophet malachi chapter 1 notice this because we've we've found it several times already in deuteronomy where god says hey don't give me your broken and defective and messed up animals as a sacrifice and the lord he knows our sinful nature that that is What we're prone to do. Not give God out of our sacrifice, but give God out of our abundance or out of our leftovers. Malachi chapter 1 verse 6, it says this. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to the priests who despise my name? Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offered defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. It's a great question for us. Our finances, our time, our energy, our church attendance, whatever other sacrifice you give to the Lord, is it done from your leftovers and ease and comfort, or are you giving God your absolute best? I see lots of times unless the stars align perfectly, we just say, oh, I can't make it to church. Unless everything aligns perfect, Lord, if there's no rain, if there's no traffic, you live in Miami. There's always rain. There's always traffic. That's why we need to purpose, Lord, this is a sacrifice unto you. We should be obedient to his word, but we should be giving sacrifices to the Lord because he sacrificed his only son for us. Jesus sacrificed his own life for us. Jesus sacrificed his glory with the Father to humble himself and be a servant for us. And we ought to sacrifice our best for him. 2 Samuel 24, 24. You see, David, he got this. There was a man that was saved. The angel's coming and about to destroy Israel. And he stops right at his vineyard. And David comes and wants to buy this vineyard in order to put an altar there to sacrifice to the Lord. So the guy says, David, don't worry, just take it for free. Just take it for free. But David boldly declares in 2 Samuel 24:24, 24, 24, no. I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. And that should be our heart and our mindset. We will not offer sacrifice and offering to the Lord our God that costs us nothing. It's not right. It's not fair. It's not just. It doesn't demonstrate true love or true reverence or true gratitude for what God has done and sacrificed for us. We jump back to Deuteronomy 17, verse 2 through 4. Now here the Lord speaks about a breach in contract. A breach in contract. Verse 2, if there is found among you within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing His covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded. And it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. So first of all, transgressing His covenant means to cross the line of His holy agreement. Israel made a holy agreement with the Lord. They made a contract. They made a document and they agreed to it back in Exodus 24. They agreed to it two times in verse 3 and in verse 7. Moses, he came and told the people the words of the Lord and all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice all the words which the Lord has said We will do. They do the same exact thing in verse 7. So now God says if someone is breaching this contract, you need to go and inquire diligently. You need to go and search out if this is true. Then second half of verse 4 and 5, it says, And if it is indeed true, and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing, and you shall stone to death that woman or man with stones. A few different topics we should look at here. Number one is capital punishment biblical. Yes, you guys read what I just read. Capital punishment, it's biblical. It is directed by God himself. In Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 it says, Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. In Romans 13 verse 1 through 7, those that love government, they love to quote this scripture. But it's important because in verse 4 of Romans 13 it says, He is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. The sword here, it's not to cut your steak or to butter your bread. The sword is capital punishment. However, we should not rejoice when our enemy stumbles. We should not have watch parties for capital punishment or rejoice or enjoy it. Because Proverbs twenty-four, seventeen and 18 warns us to not rejoice when our enemy falls and do not let our heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him and he turn away his wrath from him. We need to be very careful. Many people believe that they have more grace and more mercy and more love than the God of selfless love, mercy, and grace. Be careful that you're not so filled with pride that you think you have a greater measure of love, grace, and mercy than God himself. Now, looking at the text here, capital punishment for worshiping something other than Yahweh? Isn't that a bit harsh? Isn't that a bit excessive, some may ask? In Isaiah 54, verse 5, it puts it this way. Isaiah 54, verse 5, it tells us, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. We're to see the Lord our God as a spouse, And imagine someone marrying you, even though you are incredibly stubborn and stiff-necked. I'm sure there's no stubborn people in this room, right? But the Lord says that Israel was super stubborn, that they were a stiff-necked people. But not only does this person marry you in spite of your weaknesses and flaws and stubbornness, but you have a huge past behind you. And now they free you from all your debt. They pay off all your student loans, all your parking tickets. They, get, they renew your license. They erase all of your weights and all of the burdens that you had before you married them. Then they buy you a house. They buy you a car. They promise to always be with you, always provide for you, always protect you, and always love you. They only give you one condition. They and they alone can be your one and only spouse. Does that sound too harsh? Does that deal sound too crazy? You see, this is what the Lord does with us. If we truly are going to serve Him, then He's the only one that can be the Lord our God. He can't provide and protect and do all of this for us. And now we say, you know what? I'm going to have several husbands. It's okay if I have several wives. You see, the Lord knows our heart. And at times we think we can two-time God. We think we can play both sides of the fence. We think we can play in this gray area and it's no harm and no foul. But Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. May we be faithful to God and God alone. If there are false gods, if we are serving other gods and other idols today, may we cut them off and purge them out of our lives. May we be faithful to our one and only God. And may we love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and with all our strength, as Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 tells us. Then in verse 6 and 7 it tells us, Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterwards the hands of all the people so you shall put away the evil from among you. It wasn't enough to just take a rumor. It wasn't enough to take a he said, she said, they said, we said type approach to this. There needed to at least be two or three witnesses to the crime, and then there needed to be a thorough investigation to find out if it was true or not, because the consequences were so serious. Then if it was found true, these two or three witnesses were the first to throw the stones, and then the whole community would jump in. Purging evil is a communal task. Purging evil is a communal task. Again, we should just be honest with ourselves. What good is it for me as a parent to make sure my kids aren't on any evil websites and on nothing evil on their devices and not looking at and watching anything evil. Yet when they go visit and hang out with other kids that have devices, they're showing them all that evil and all that wretchedness. This purging of evil, it needs to be a communal thing. And we should be linking arms with our brothers and sisters. We should almost be making covenants and agreements with our best of friends saying, hey, as for we and our houses we will serve the Lord. Because this purging of evil, we need the whole community of believers to jump in to protect our sons and daughters. So often people will come to church leadership or they'll come to someone that's older to them than them and they'll bring their grievances of someone else's pains and problems and difficulties, desiring that someone else deal with it And cast the first stones but you see that's not biblical if you witnessed the crime if you witnessed the issue if the sin is against you then the biblical directive is that you need to go to that person directly and deal with it yourself in a biblical manner now the biblical manner is not hitting them with a rock no longer right we live in the new covenant. In Matthew 18, verse 15 through 20, this is our biblical mandate when someone sins against us or if we're witnessing some type of evil. We are to go to them and them alone. And if, they don't, if we don't win them over as a brother or sister, then we go to them with one or two witnesses hoping to win them over as a brother or sister. And if they still don't listen, then you bring those two witnesses and now you bring someone from church leadership in order to gain that brother or sister. However, if they still refuse, then you are to cut them off and allow them to be like a heathen to you. This is the biblical mandate for us. David Guzik, he makes a great note here. He says, we may comfort ourselves that we would never judge someone guilty of murder so quickly without proper evidence. Yet many will murder someone's reputation in their own mind or in the minds of others with no witnesses, not even one. You see, there's a biblical mandate for this as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, it tells us, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Guzik continues, he says, It does not say except from two or three gossips. It's from two or three witnesses. If a matter is false, it does not all of a sudden become true because lots of people repeat it or lots of people hear it. If you grew up on veggie Tales, we all know about the rumor weed and the danger of just repeating he say and she say over and over again. Make sure you got witnesses because lots of damage has been done just hearing rumors and repeating and hearing rumors and repeating. And if people would just handle things biblically, it'd be cut off right at the root. Now, in verse 8, there are certain things that were too difficult for Israelites to handle on their own. It says, If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one's judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and go up to the place. Which the Lord your God chooses. And you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judge there in those days, and inquire of them, and they shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. You see, our worship and praises should go up to the Lord our God. And our views of justice and righteousness ought to come down from the Lord our God and from His Word. Our morals are going to base and attach to whatever we worship. That's why when someone worships sex and comfort, their morals look drastically different. If someone worships revenge and violence, their morals are going to look drastically different. And if we are truly worshiping the Lord our God, then our morals are going to come from Him. He directs them to go to the priests and Levites, that they were the judges for Israel at this time. And then in verse 10 and 11, it tells us, you shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the Lord chooses. And you shall be careful... To do according to all that they order you, according to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounced upon you. We can turn to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, very famous and very important verse within Scripture. But that whole section is so important for us. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 through 27. And here it tells us, keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left and remove your foot from evil. You see, turning to the right or to the left means wandering from the truth. And for the Israelites in Deuteronomy, it meant wandering from the truth that was given to them from the priests, from the Levites, and from the judges. For us, turning to the right or to the left is to wander away from the Word of God. And as we sing often, prone to wander, we are all prone to wander. We need to ponder our path. We need to let our ways be established. We need to keep our heart. We need to put away our deceitful mouths. We need to look straight ahead so that we don't turn to the right or to the left. Earlier in Deuteronomy 12 verse 32, it says, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. And many of our issues come from Adding to the Word of God or taking away from the Word of God. People, they add verses that don't exist. You know what the Bible says? God helps those that help themselves. It's not in Scripture. You you know what the Bible says? Money is the root of all evil. It's not what the Bible says. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. We need to be careful that we're not adding to Scripture or taking away from Scripture. We need to make sure we're not turning slightly to the right or slightly to the left. It's interesting because there's only one king that we hear of that did not turn aside to the right or to the left. It's found in 2 Chronicles 34, and there's an eight-year-old boy king, Josiah. And it tells us that this 8-year-old reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. May we be biblical men and women. May we know Jesus Christ. Back to Deuteronomy 17, verse 12 and 13. It tells us, Now the man who acts presumptuously, this is the man who does not obey and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So shall you put away the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. Again, there's a warning. This death penalty in the front of the whole city would warn people, yeah, I'm going to listen to the priest because that guy didn't listen to the priest and he no longer exists. I'm going to listen to the priest. I'm going to listen to what the Lord has to say. Capital punishment for sexual immorality. Yeah, I'm going to keep myself pure because the last person I saw that was committing adultery is dead and now in the ground. I'm going to be a bit more pure now. We could also think of it was a capital punishment for kids that did not obey or disobey, that disobeyed their parents. I'm sure when that first kid got brought out, all the other kids, they shaped up and, Dad, I love you. What can I do for you today? Because this warned everyone else to keep obedient to the word of the Lord. Have you ever seen someone's life wrecked because they began to disobey the word of the Lord? Do you know someone in your life that now their life is a tragedy because they slowly but surely veered off, they started turning to the right or turning to the left and they kept disobeying and now they're reaping what they're sowing. May we see their lives as a warning to us to keep in the love of God and to stay obedient to His Word. In verse 12 and 13, what we see is that the priest was God's representative to the people. No one in this time period could come into the Holy of Holies except for the high priest once a year. So to directly disobey the priest would be like disobeying God himself. Now for us today, we are blessed because we don't have to go to Jerusalem or go to the tabernacle or go to the temple to ask a high priest when there's a situation that's too difficult for us. But Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 gives us so much good news because it tells us we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So you don't have to come to me. Don't let any pastor... Get these verses and sort of guilt you into running every decision by them. You may be in a cult if that's the case. We are to come to the Lord when we are in grave difficulty and when situations don't make sense. James chapter 1 verse 5 tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. We can boldly come and ask our high priest at any time of day when we face difficulties that we just can't make any sense of. We don't need a mediator between us and God anymore. We don't need someone to ask of God to then give us His wisdom However, many Christians go to the other end of the spectrum where now they think that they can only speak with God and God alone. And now you're jumping into an area of foolishness because you're discounting wise counsel. This is found all over Proverbs. Proverbs 11, verse 14, Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors there is safety. Proverbs 15, 22, without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. One last one here, Proverbs 24, verse 6, for by wise counsel, you will wage your own war. And in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. So we're blessed to live in the New Testament because we get the best of both worlds. We can come boldly to the throne of grace, asking for help. And then we also ought to have accountability and a group of wise counsel where there's safety, where plans get established, where good warfare can be waged instead of falling, going away, and getting destroyed in the battle. Finally, we come to this last section in Deuteronomy 17, And we see the way that the Lord wants His royalty to live. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 and 15, it says, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it, and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you, Whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. The all knowing God is able to look 400 years into the future when Israel would desire to be like other nations and cry out for a king so that they could look like the nations around them. This is found in 1 Samuel chapter 8, that the Israelites, they begin to cry out to Samuel, give us a king. And Samuel, he begins to mourn, and God says, hey, get up. They're not mad at you, they're mad at me. They don't have a problem with you, they have a problem with me. So the Lord knew this was going to happen, and I believe it was in God's plan and God's purposes to give Israel a king. I believe this is not like 100% Absolutely the word of God. I believe David was the first king that God wanted for Israel. But the nation of Israel, they got out of control. They got out of God's plan in a bit. So God said, all right, you want a king? I'm going to give you the king that you desire. And then they're given King Saul. But here, look at these rules in verse 16 and 17. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. He he should help the economy of the nation. He should help the nation grow and multiply in silver and gold. But he was not to use his role in government to just amass wealth for himself. Sound familiar? But Proverbs 20 verse 7 tells us this. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God Israel had fought many battles in the book of Exodus and in the wilderness. Israel's going to fight many battles in the book of Joshua. Now, you guys, you're Bible scholars. How many battles were won because they were more powerful as an army because of their chariots and swords and spears? None. They won battles by walking around seven times, right? Right? They won battles by having jars and fire in it and then breaking the jars and screaming. And they won battles in this way. They won battles by having two guys hold up Moses' arms. You see, Israel was to rely and trust in their true king, which was the Lord their God. God did not want the king to trust in his military might. To not just trust in, hey, I have this huge army, so I'm going to just trust in this huge army behind me. We also see that he wasn't to trust in Egypt or wives or silver and gold. The king, God's royalty, is not to focus on comfort and pleasure and gain from his role within the country. And sadly, Solomon broke every single one of these that's why his heart was led astray. David Guzik, he points out how Solomon was a notorious breaker of these commands. 1 Kings 4, verse 26 tells us that he had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and that his horses were imported from Egypt itself. 1 Kings ten twenty eight tells us. We also know that he had 700 wives, which were princesses, and 300 concubines. Talk about multiplying wives here. Excessive multiplication. And these wives turned his heart away. 1 Kings 11.3 tells us. He also surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches in 1 Kings 10.23. It's interesting because David, in all his sin, and if we look at David's sin, it looks much worse than anything Solomon ever did. But God was always David's God. God didn't leave the God Yahweh and the God of the Bible to go and serve other gods. Solomon began to serve and worship the other gods of all these different wives that he multiplied for himself. He began to build temples to other gods within the nation of Israel. And what we see here is that there's nothing new under the sun. The greatest temptations for pastors and leaders today is the love of money, the love of pleasure, and the love of power. It's the same three great weaknesses and temptations that I have to look out for, and you men need to look out for as well. The love of money, the love of pleasure and comfort, and the love of power. I think it's also very interesting that Proverbs 31 says, Verse 4 through 7, some of you may not like this, but hey, it's in the Bible. Proverbs 31, verse 4 through 7, it says the following. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. The question is, do you want to live like royalty? Or do you want to live like someone who is poor and perishing? Because scripturally, as Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 and 6 tells us, that Jesus Christ has made us a kingdom of kings and priests. And I don't know about you, I want to live like royalty. So the first time I'm going to take that drink is when Jesus gives it to me there in heaven. I'm going to be a Somali in heaven. Don't you get any ideas, right? In heaven, I'll be a Somali. But until then, I'll just get into fancy coffee and things like that. It is not for kings to drink wine. It is not for kings to multiply horses, not multiply wives, and not multiply great silver and gold. Because it will lead our hearts astray. Verse 18 through 20, it says, It shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. That his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So we see the things he should not do in the first half of the section, but now we see what he ought to be doing. The king was to take the scrolls that the Levites had and write down for himself his own copy of the law. He was to have his own Bible in his own handwriting. And it was to be with him, not left at home, not left on the coffee table, not blowing dust before he goes to a conference or retreat. But it was to be with him and he was to read it all the days of his life. How often should we read the Bible? All the days of our lives. We need it each and every day because as we take in the Word of God each and every day, it helps us to fear the Lord our God. As we read His Word every day, it helps us to be careful to observe His Word each and every day. If we read His Word all the days of our life, it keeps us humble. What was Saul's great sin? That he was no longer small in his own eyes. Saul, in the beginning, he was humble. He was small in his own eyes. But he started to buy the hype. He started to think he was special. He started to think he was important. And that was his downfall. To continue to have a humble heart, we need to stay in God's Word each and every day. And we say that when we stay in God's Word, it keeps us on the straight and narrow It keeps us on the narrow path that leads to life and godliness. And in fact, it prolongs his days in the kingdom. And it not only blesses him, but it blesses his children as well. It's been said this book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book. How often do you read scriptures? How often are you in the Bible? Do you want to live like royalty, or do you want to live in poverty? We need to be in his word day in and day out to protect ourselves and to protect our family, to have blessings. I want blessings. I'll be selfish. I want blessings for my own life, but I also want blessings for my children. Matthew Matthew Poole, he says the following. The scriptures diligently read and studied are a powerful and probable means to keep him humble because they show him that though a king he is subject to a higher monarch to whom he must give an account, sufficient to abate the pride of the haughtiest person in the world if he duly consider it. You see, there's a danger where we think we are the biggest man in the room. We're the chief. We're the grandpappy of them all, right? And it's important to remind ourselves we will all answer to a higher king and a higher power, we will answer to the Lord our God. Hey let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. verse 23 through 29. Paul gives an account to the church of Corinth of this Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples. This Last Supper that we're told the early church in Acts 2.42 was doing over and over and over again. And it led to this extreme growth within the church so healthy for us to partake of the Lord's Supper. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you In my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and to let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So tonight this is what we get to do. We get to remember Jesus' death and sacrifice for us. We spoke of sacrifice tonight, how we are prone to give God whatever costs us least, and yet Jesus gave what cost him The absolute most for us. His body broken for us. Blood spilling out of his body for us. To save us. To sanctify us. To give us life in this life and life eternal. And then we are to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are to proclaim to all the world that Jesus died for the sins of the world. He died for me. He died for you. And now we ought to examine ourselves. In view of Jesus' sacrifice to save us while we were still sinners, are we giving him our best out of a cheerful heart? Or are we trying to give him our leftovers? Are we trying to serve two masters? Are we out there serving the foreign gods that cause us to sin, which put him to death in the first place? Am I being unfaithful to the Lord my God that has given so much for me? Am I being unfaithful to that husband that has paid all of my debt and saved me and promised to be with me and protect me and love me all the days of my life? Am I being unfaithful to him? Am I actively purging the evil out of my life? And out of the life of my home, out of the life of my children's lives, am I actively purging this evil out? Or am I simply seeking after comfort and treasure and earthly pleasures instead of storing up treasures in heaven? May we examine ourselves as we take of communion, as we sing together, may we pray and say, Lord, My heart is evil and wicked. Who can know it, Lord? It is deceitful. But Lord, your word is the great mirror to show me where I'm at today. Lord, reveal yourself to me. and know that he is just and faithful to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So worship team, if you would come up. Sound video if you dim the lights. And let's pray. And then the pastors will come up and hand out the elements when you're ready. You could take of the bread, and you could take of the cup. Lord, we, Lord words fail us. Lord, to, dis, to just describe how grateful we are, Lord, for your sacrifice towards us. Lord, thank you that knowing the end from the beginning, Lord, knowing each time I would sin, each time I would fail you, each time I would desert you, Lord, and yet you still loved me, yet you still died for me, yet you still forgive me over and over again. Lord, help us now. Help us now, Lord. take us to that place, God, where we can focus on this great death and sacrifice. The reality of the payment that our sins require. The reality of the cost for this great relationship that we get to have, Lord. It could only be by your blood and sacrifice. Lord, we thank you for this new covenant that we get to be in, Lord. But we know the price that you had to pay to bring us into this new covenant, Lord. Lord, be with us now, God. We, we pray that you'd strengthen us, Lord, that there'd be no condemnation here. But Lord, if you're convicting us, if you're bringing to the surface our flesh and carnality and sin, Lord, may we be bold to come to the throne of grace, Lord, knowing that we need mercy and help right now. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you so much for the rest of eternity. We'll be thanking you for your death and sacrifice for us, Lord. We'd be nothing without you. We can do nothing without you, Jesus. So we just love you. We thank you. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.